0: Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, fall has come, such as it is here in Texas. It's not the sort of autumn I grew up with in the northern reaches of the country, where by now the leaves would mostly be past their peak color and probably turn to brown and dry and fall into the ground. We might have even had some snow by now. Yet even here in the Lone Star State, where we're a little bit south of the northernmost reaches of Mexico and the gulf that bears its name, fall is still distinctly different from summer, isn't it? No more hundred-degree days until next year, almost certainly. I haven't seen a mosquito in weeks. We've had a few frosty mornings already. And a sweater or a light jacket is probably a good idea when going out for an evening walk. At this time of the year, we do not have to consult a calendar to figure out that it's not summer anymore. There are signs of it in the air, in the plant life, and all around town. Let's see. Football games, a few lingering election signs, college students on campus. Yes, it is fall. Fall is a signpost, a way marker of the cycle of seasons. But even the worst pessimist in the worst climate does not think that fall is the sign of permanent winter. We all know that as surely as fall gives way to winter, so too will winter yield in the face of spring, which in turn will surrender to the heat of another summer. Such are the ways of the seasons as we know them. They cycle onward over and over again and are for marking the days and the weeks and the months and the years. We know how to read the signs of these seasons. After all, people have been reading them for a very long time. The prominent signs of seasons are one thing to read, but the changes from era to era in history are quite another. What are the signs of these changes? At times, the words of the Bible, the words of Jesus himself, proclaim these signs as being there for the reading as well. Just continue reading on a little bit further in Luke's Gospel after today's text, and you'll see some more examples of this. At other times, we are warned that the days and the weeks are coming, but at an unexpected time, and thus we should stand and be ready to meet them at all times. But in our text for today, the disciples puzzle over Jesus' words of warning. The beauty that they see, signified by the splendor of the temple in Jerusalem, seems to be much more of a a permanent thing than the trees or the temperatures that change with the seasons. Yet Jesus warns them that all of these, too, will pass away. What then will this catastrophic destruction mean? Is it the start of a new epoch of history? Does it mean that the age of the Messiah and the vindication of Israel are upon them? If so, then the destruction of so important a national symbol as the temple seems to bode ill for these people. Puzzled, the disciples ask Jesus what it all means. Jesus' answer is somewhat surprising. The wars, the destructions, the persecutions, yes, these will all take place. Lots of the sort of spectacular events that many people associate with the end of the world will happen. But the end is not associated with these things. They're almost like the cycles of the seasons. They have happened, they do happen today, and they will continue to happen. They have continued to happen for nearly 2,000 years since Jesus spoke of them. And they certainly existed before that, too. But these signs are not to be read or to be speculated about as determining or indicating the time when history will change from one era to another. That change also is certainly happening, but not with the spectacular cosmic events that so many think and expect. Israel, at the time of Jesus and for many centuries before, had its own national stories, just as we do here in America. Chief among the Israelites' stories was the account of the Exodus. This was the story of their origins as a people, as a nation. It was a family story, dealing with their ancient ancestor Jacob, who had been renamed Israel one who struggles with God. It was an appropriate name to be carried by those whose blood flowed in their veins too. The Exodus was a patterned story. It included an oppressive nation, Egypt, with an oppressive king, Pharaoh. It told of God's intervention and the people's vindication. It was a repeating story too. Egypt could also be Babylon, or Greece, or Syria. Pharaoh could also be Nebuchadnezzar, or Alexander the Great, or Antiochus Epiphanes. Time and again, though, God had still intervened for them. And the people had once more come out of Egypt and were vindicated again. The way that Israel told the story at the time of Jesus' ministry followed this same pattern, and so they expected similar results. Rome was the new oppressor. Caesar, the new pharaoh. The expectation was that the intervention of God and the victory of the people was near. Certainly the Maccabees had raised the nation's expectations when, with God's help, they had taken matters into their own hands and had defeated the Syrians. That era, 200 years before Jesus, also had employed imagery of the end of the world to explain the cosmic significance of political events. With this story also came the ability to see the pattern and predict that it would happen once again. The rebuilding of the temple, even under the auspices of an evil dynasty of kings like the Herods, was seen as a sign that God was about to dwell with His people once again. What's more, the presence of John the Baptist, a new prophet like Elijah, the one who was foretold in the final words of the Old Testament to be the forerunner of the great and terrible day of the Lord, raised expectations further. Many were convinced that the Messiah... And the victorious army of Israel's resistance and liberation were about to reappear. The stage was set for God to do it all once again. And in a sense, with Jesus, God was doing exactly that. The story was repeating. In another and more important sense, however, the story was about to be completely reframed, it was no longer going to be part of a cycle. This time, God's intervention was different. No longer was this to be the story of Israel alone. Now the story would include an intervention within Israel, within the people that God would restore once again to their vocation as light of the world. However, it was a story about and a story for all peoples, all of those whom God had created through Adam and Eve and whom he had sustained with the bounty of His creation. Furthermore, this time the story would not revolve around the symbols of national pride and even idolatry. The promised land, the temple, the ancestry from Abraham. Instead, these symbols are transformed as God's promises going back as far as Genesis 3 are fulfilled. The land the temple, and the ancestry are returned to their rightful and limited place in the national narrative. The people of Israel are no longer exclusively blessed, but are blessed so that they can be a blessing to all nations. The land which had been promised to Abraham on account of his trust in God's promises is now hallowed as the location from which the source of healing for all of creation flowed. The temple is replaced. God's dwelling place is no longer within a building, but Emmanuel now resides within the humanity of Jesus Christ. The more that the story is reframed, the more it echoes with the themes of the prophets, both in warning and in promise. In the middle of all of this reframing of the story, it's important to observe that Jesus never does get around to answering the question, when will this be? He talks around it. He talks of signs, but not of the end. He talks of persecutions, even within families, but says that comes way before the end. He talks of endurance, but he never says how long that endurance must be. We're so likely to get caught up in the images and the themes that we almost do not recognize that Jesus breaks yet another tackle on his way to his goal. He will not be pinned down on this subject. And so his answer could leave you asking, where's the good news in all of this? Are we simply to brace ourselves for more suffering? Are we waiting only for the promise of the future? What is God doing for us in the face of all of these cycles of tumult and violence and uncertainty that whirl around us, day after day, year after year? The first answer to these questions is found in Jesus himself. When he suggests that we do not need to prepare a defense in advance because he will give us the words to say, he is telling us that he is with us. He will support us. He will not abandon us. Indeed, in the book of Acts and throughout the epistles of the New Testament, Jesus' resurrection and subsequent ascension are not seen as his absence from the disciples. Rather, these disciples, now apostles, are emboldened by the presence of the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus had sent to lead and guide and strengthen them, just as he had promised. This leads us to the second and perhaps most important answer to what God is doing God is already establishing a new age within us. Here is the paradox then. The new age of the Lord does not come with wars or tumult, but in the quiet of a night. The new era begins not with a violent uprising, but rather with the birth of a child in remote Bethlehem. The new world comes about not by resisting the forces of a powerful empire which controls its subjects with the threat of death, but rather with the surrender of a servant king to his own death, that through that death, he and all of his followers would come to new life. This is how God in Jesus undertakes to destroy death and its power. The wars and the tumults, even in our day, are merely the dying cries of the kings of this world. The God of the universe has subverted their power and sown the seeds of the new kingdom, the new reign of God within our world, within our limited perspective and limited imagination and comprehension. Yet for those with the Spirit granted faith to see it, and the Spirit led courage to endure, the tumult of this world becomes both more and less than what it is to unbelievers. Let's be objectively honest, though. Certainly the wars and the violence and the disasters and the plagues and the pandemics and the cosmic signs are indeed terrible. All humanity suffers, oppressors and oppressed alike. God, too, suffers with us, for He has bound Himself to us in Christ, in the Spirit, in the creation, and in word and sacrament. Still, the tumults of this world, of which our lesson speaks today, assumes and conveys terrible power in the face of such honesty. But these things do not have ultimate power, nor does the prince of this world. The tumult and its instigator cannot control Jesus and can never control those who are named and claimed by God in baptism. Though these may yet kill us, they do not harm us. God's love is stronger still. So we are not fooled by the endless cycles of violence and hardship in the world. We take them for what they are, the death throes of our own sinfulness, both personally and on a grand global scale. We struggle against them, even while we know that we are just as responsible for them and for the suffering they cause as is anyone else. But apart from them, we see God's hidden action too. We have hope for the eternal reign of God. It is promised. It is already begun. It is just not yet fully present. Therefore, we neither trust in nor fear the powers of this world, We don't depend on the interpretations of signs and wonders and events to judge or to fret over how history will play out. And we look not to our great cities, our military might, or even to beautiful church buildings for our hope in a dark, disturbing, and dangerous age. Our hope rests upon the blood and righteousness of the crucified and risen one alone, our ever-present Lord, Jesus Christ. In His holy name. Amen.